hot. Well, good morning, and again, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. We are thrilled that you chose to come and just worship the Lord together. And again, whether you're new to First Baptist or you come regularly, it's just great to be in the house of the Lord, to be able to come and to worship and to study and to do all that. Again, thanks to the worship team. What a great time that was, and I really appreciate you guys and all the sacrifice that you do. Well, <clears throat> I thought I would ask a question starting off. My voice is going a little bit, so forgive me if that happens. Going through puberty, so I have a little tough time coming through. Sometimes I squeak. Um, I talked to a lot of people this week who were commenting about how they were watching the Bible TV show. People watching the Bible on TV this week, don't be embarrassed, it's okay. Um, you know what, I mean, that's cool. I, I, by the way, like in most movies, I typically think the book is better, you know, so <laughs> just saying. <clears throat> but, you know, if, if seriously you are new to the whole Bible story, um, you know, maybe watching it on TV, and I'm not trying to say it's all exactly accurate or not, that's fine, you know, it's Hollywood at the end of the day, but... Um, it kind of gives you an overview of what the Bible story is all about. And especially if you're new, maybe that'd be a good introduction for you to go through and to think about that. I know that when I was in school, you know, about 80 years ago, whatever it seems like a long time ago, I know I'm a late bloomer with the puberty thing. Um, you know, I, I didn't like reading books. I know that's a shock to you probably. I didn't like reading books. So if there was a book that was assigned that had a movie, you know, I'd go get the movie. And, uh, of course, the teachers knew to ask questions that weren't in the movie, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You'd get something like, uh, I don't know if they still make these or not, but it, when I was in school, they had this thing called Cliff's Notes. Cliff's Notes was like a summary. Do they still have those? Yeah. Students know that they have those. Okay. They used to have them way back then, and, uh, you know, that saved me a few times. So um, if you're not a big reader, and if you haven't spent a ton of time reading the Bible, okay, you might enjoy the TV show. This is not to be an advertisement for the TV show, but... In the cliff note version of the Bible, the, the Bible can be all kind of whittled down into one common theme, one common thread that just kind of runs through all the pages of the Bible, that all the different stories and all the ways it plays out really tells one story. And that one story is really the story that we see depicted in the passage of Scripture that we're in today. And that's why I say that, because today we are going to look at that, that main issue. And that main issue, uh, depending on where you're from and who you've heard teach it, uh, some people say that the main theme of the Bible is all about a king and a kingdom. And that would be one way that we express it. Uh, some people just want to say it's all about Jesus, okay? But that's exactly what we're going to see today. And if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 12, because that's where we're at in our Bible study. And we'll look there in just a second. As you're opening to John chapter 12, um, let me just remind you that when we look into the Scriptures, you've got to understand that it is truly an historical book. Uh, when the Bible speaks about events in history, it speaks with complete accuracy, and so when we read this story that we're going to read, it literally happened, and there is a historical context in which we will understand the very critical importance of the events, as we'll see when we get into it. And typically, most of the Bible, not all of it, but a lot of the Bible, in its historical context, had to do with how God was dealing with his people, specifically the nation of Israel at that time. 
okay? And, but with that historical understanding, we have to understand that obviously God has a bigger picture and a lesson for all of us, and so there's a historical understanding, and we'll see it in today's story, but there's also always going to be a practical, very personal application to all Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it's for all of us to learn things, and we're going to see a very practical application as well of this exact story in John chapter 12. And the title that I've given it is The Presentation of the King. The Presentation of the King. And like I said, if the Bible's all about the King of Kings coming and setting up his kingdom on this earth and us having the opportunity to be a part of that, then certainly this story as Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem in a very unique way is critically important to the unfolding of the historical account of man and as we'll see before we're done is very important to the unfolding story of God for each and every one of our lives today understanding we're not Israel we're not alive back then it applies to us today so in the history of man I could say that God had kind of been waiting a long time to finally get to the point where this day when Jesus enters Jerusalem in this way was going to take place okay so before we jump in and read let's just pray and clear our hearts and minds and be prepared to hear God's word let's just pray and then we'll read and heavenly father as we do look into this passage that is our prayer that you would take your word and through your spirit speak to our hearts and our lives i pray lord that as we read this story of you entering into jerusalem on on a donkey and people throwing palm branches out before you and and you would help us to understand the significance of how critically important that was an event back in those days but lord probably more importantly for all of us while we understand that history is what does that mean to me and what are you trying to tell me today and how does that apply to the problems and the issues in my life today and i pray you'd give us understanding for that too because you have written your word with that in mind yes it has the history but it absolutely can give us something that we can benefit from today and so we come today uh, specifically to meet you to hear from you to learn from you to get answers for our life and i pray that you would do that and pray in christ's name amen all right well we're going to jump in in john chapter 12 and we're going to start in verse number 12 and uh, we're going to read together and uh, before we read let me just tell you this first point we're going to present the king jesus is going to be presented and the first thing we're going to look at is that historical account and so in your notes you have the king of the jews the king of the Jews, because that's who Jesus Christ is. And so that, that is important. So let's read together from verses 12 down to 19. Follow along as I read. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world 
is gone after him. So as we see this event and we come to this point in history, Jesus Christ in chapter 11 did his final public miracle in raising a man who was dead four days. His name was Lazarus. He raised him from the grave. Lazarus is now alive and well and walking around Jerusalem. The, the historical setting is the feast of the Passover, and that's what we see starting in chapter 12 and verse number one. It was six days before the Passover, so they're in the final week leading up to this massive uh, Jewish feast. Uh, Jesus Christ is entering into Jerusalem. He's riding the colt of a donkey, and he's coming in. This, this event marks the official ushering in of the king of Israel, like they cried Hosanna, and we're going to look at all these elements. Um, what does that all mean? This, this is an official prophesied fulfillment. This is something God would have talked about throughout the Old Testament. And so people who would have understood the Scriptures, and by the way, the Jews showing up for the Passover would have understood the Scriptures. Uh, they would have seen Jesus do something. I mean, this is an apex. I mean, this is something that, that the Bible prophets and scholars would have been looking for. This is an event that would have marked the revelation of the one who is to be the king of Israel and ultimately the king of all the nations. This is huge. You go back and you just think about the Bible story from the very beginning. Obviously, God created everything in six 24-hour days, the last day of which he created man. He made man perfect and sinless in a garden and all of that. And then man of his own choice chose to sin. He had one rule, don't eat of one tree. He chose to eat of that tree and sin enters into our world. And the whole Old Testament is a story of unfolding how God now is going to try to fix the problem that we as sinful men um, caused, and that's sin. And so it started with our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam, passed along to every generation. And what God does, in fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we have the very first prophecy. I mean, immediately when man sins in Genesis 3, God gives a very first prophecy about how there will be one who will come, who will be the seed of a woman. That's an indication of a virgin birth because women don't have seed. And so it will be the seed of a woman and that he will be the one that will bruise the head of the serpent and that is the devil and ultimately be in charge of everything. And so it begins in Genesis 3. It works its way all the way through. Jeff had referred to our, our reading through the word as a church body. If you're participating with us, you're coming through, like he said, in the book of Deuteronomy and the law of Moses. And you would have spent a lot of time recently reading about this Old Testament blood sacrifice system where they have the tabernacle in the wilderness and they kill the animals and they sprinkle the blood and they do the different things they do. And all of those different sacrifices ultimately were God's way of setting up a system. In a nutshell, this is the cliff notes. This is God's way of setting up a system to pay for sin. And the annual sacrificial system that ultimately led up to the greatest feast of Israel of all was what they called the Day of Atonement. And at the Day of Atonement, that was where ultimately the sins were made for the people for their sin. And if the families of the tribes would come and follow the procedures that were given to them and offer the lamb and offer the blood on the altar through the, the system of the high priests, then their sin would be atoned for, but just for that year. And they had to do it all over again the next year. And so in the Old Testament, God is setting up a system, and he's ultimately going to fulfill it, okay? But for a while, it's just a temporary fix. It's renewable annually. 
So if you and your family did what you were supposed to do in all of the sacrifices of blood and somebody dies in your family during that time frame, then you would have been okay. But if you would have rejected God's sacrifice this year, for example, and then died, you would have died in your sins and you'd have been separated from God. And that's the way the Old Testament system was set up. And that's what God did. In fact, if you wanted to look in the book of Hebrews, and we'll have some verses popping up on the screen for you. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, the Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So God required right from the very beginning that an animal's blood had to be shed, and that's how he clothed Adam and Eve in their nakedness with coats of skins. Fig leaves were not good enough. He needed an animal skin. He killed an animal, shed the blood, and caused the coats of skins for their covering. But if you looked over in the next chapter in Hebrews, in chapter number 10, in verses 3 and 4, it says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, it just postponed them another year, and that was the system. Until Jesus Christ shows up in John chapter 1 and verse 29 where John the Baptist saw him from afar and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which what? Taketh away the sin of the world. Only Jesus Christ can take away our sin. And so when Jesus shows up after 4,000 years of human history, this is a big deal, right? All our calendars are marked. It was whether they, people lived before the time of Christ or after the time of Christ. I mean, this is a, this is a history changing moment. And in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has now finished all of his public, miraculous ministry to the masses. And he's marching down this last week to the Passover where ultimately he's going to be crucified. And before he does that, he enters into Jerusalem in this very unique way to declare to all of these Jews, I am the one that the prophets talked about. Now, he would have declared that many other ways with the things that he'd done in his teaching up to this point. But this is just the next step. He is who he says he is, and he proves it through all these different ways in his life, certainly that he lived a sinless life, certainly through all his amazing teaching, and certainly through all the miracles that he performed. And through all of that three years and some change, public ministry on earth, there were some that believed and followed him. There were many that rejected him. And there were still others that were just, eh, whatever, indifferent. Kind of like today. Kind of like today. And so this is what we see. We're in the Passover, and the Passover is a feast of deliverance. We're not going to do a history lesson on the, on, the, on the Passover. It comes from Exodus chapter 12, when they're the last plague, when they're leaving Egypt, and the death angel is going to pass over. And if you kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the top post, when the death angel passes over you, then he will not take the firstborn. Okay, and that was to be repeated generation after generation in the nation of Israel. This is a feast that marks salvation. This is a feast that marks deliverance. It is the, the, the children of Israel, their firstborn of every family, were literally saved by the blood of a lamb when they applied that lamb to their house. And it was a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done to all of us. Before we get into all that and look at the details of some of these elements of his entering in, let me just remind you of a couple of things about Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 10, where he was teaching his disciples to pray, among that prayer he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus' prayer to the Father is, is that his kingdom, that is a heavenly kingdom, will one day establish itself on the earth. And that's a really important thing because that is what Jesus is presenting as he's entering Jerusalem in this story. And there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that just kind of confirm this thing. And if you went to Psalms chapter 2, it says, I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. When the Bible refers to Zion in an earthly sense, there is a heavenly Zion, but the earthly Zion, that's Jerusalem, okay? That's Jerusalem. In the book of Isaiah in chapter number two, we have the same thing where it says in verses two and three, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of God of Jacob. Jacob is Israel. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from, there it is, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Zion, and ultimately God's kingdom will be set up with his Christ on David's throne in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he says. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David, according to Luke chapter 1, when the angel speaks to Mary about Jesus being born. And it says his kingdom will have no end and so this is something that they would have prophesied the stage is set his public ministry is over we saw that at the end of chapter number 11 in fact if you glance back at chapter 11 and verse number 54 after that miracle was with Lazarus and they said hey we got to kill this guy which is a crazy response it says Jesus therefore walked no more openly that's important among the Jews Uh, after that miracle with Lazarus he was done with what he had to do publicly miraculously they were trying to kill him and he kind of went into hiding and so his open public ministry doesn't exist anymore and the and they're all waiting they're, they're laying in wait to get him they're like this big feast certainly Jesus will show up in the Passover and the Pharisees had their spies and they're like when he shows up you tell us because we're going to catch him we're going to falsely accuse him and we're going to murder him and so it's all like is Jesus really going to show Or is he going to not come to the Passover? And they're like, this is the big deal. So they kind of expected him to show up. What they didn't expect is that he would show up with this kind of an entry. Okay, and that's really what I want you to see. So Jesus knows they're going to try and kill him. And understand this, friends, really, obviously. Jesus Christ fears no man, right? Amen. He fears no man. But he's not coming to Jerusalem. You got to get this. Just because he's brave. He's not, well, I ain't scared of you. That's not what he's doing. He comes to Jerusalem at this perfect time because it is God's time for him to do what he was sent here to do. And that's ultimately to die for that nation. Ultimately, that's what he came to do. And because it was time, he then comes forward and he shows himself. So again, they all expected him to come. They just didn't expect him to come this way. Uh, the theologians would refer to this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on this donkey. They call it the triumphal entry, okay? As he's going to declare his triumph over all of the obstacles that he's had leading up to this time. So there's some elements, and these elements of the story are the things I want us to look at as we continue. And why are they so significant? Well, the first thing I put out there, he enters on a donkey's colt. 
And, and that is something that comes directly from prophecy. It comes from the prophet Zechariah, okay? And in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9, it says very clearly, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so the fact that they knew that this Messiah would ultimately enter into Jerusalem and he is their king, and when he will enter, he will enter not in grandeur, not in splendor, not on some great stallion, not with a parade and trumpets and banners, not with all of the fanfare. He will enter, it says, lowly, humbly, riding on a baby donkey. That's how he's going to come in. But the prophet said that's how he's going to come in. So when Jesus does this, again, it's, an, it's a very unassuming entrance because the typical Jew of that time would have understood, yes, there's going to be a Messiah, and yes, we're going to be the nation above all nations. They understood all that, but they were looking for some powerful, strong-handed dictator, ruler that will crush the enemy. And Jesus shows up as this humble servant preaching a life of surrender and righteousness. And they were just confused about all that, but it's all part of his plan because Jesus always begins his pre- with this, the presentation of the king. He always begins his presentation humbly, unassuming, giving you the opportunity to decide for yourself. By the way, he will come again. It says, and having salvation. And having salvation has a national context for Israel. It has a practical context for us. We'll see that in a minute. But when he comes again, because they rejected him, when he comes again, we're going to find that he's going to enter again to set up his kingdom, but this time the entrance won't be so humble. This time it's going to be bold, okay? And so in Revelation chapter 19, where we have described for us the literal parting of the skies and Jesus returning to ultimately the second coming and setting up his thousand-year kingdom on earth, notice how it's described this time. It's no more donkey's colt, okay? And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. That's the leader they were looking for. His eyes were as a flame of fire. But by the time he comes back at this time, if you're not already in, it's too late for you, friends. And on his head were many crowns because he's the king of kings. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. That's an entirely different entrance, is it not? That's quite a different scenario than the lowly servant king riding on a baby donkey and walking down the hillside. None the least of which fully prophesied and declaring to anybody who's paying attention, this is who he is. This is the apex of Jewish history up to this point. This is a big day, guys. This is a big day. It says next, they cried out, Hosanna. What does that mean? Well, Hosanna literally means, translated, save us now. That's what it means. We sing the songs, Hosanna. When we sing that, if you've never known what does that mean, that's what it means. Save us. Help us. That's what they're doing. So Jesus rides in on the donkeys, and there are those there who are saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes 
in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Why? He's here to save us. He's coming. He's lowly, but he's bringing salvation. And that comes directly from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where it says, save now. That's Hosanna. (laughs) I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And so again, the scenario is being put together. Uh, The Pharisees and the unbelievers that are watching this, they're outraged because they're, what are you doing? Why are you crying out to him that way? They knew the scriptures. And it says that they threw palm branches down in front of them. This is where we get our idea of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday would be the Sunday we apply it, the Sunday before Easter Sunday. So that'll be a couple weeks from today, according to our current calendar. Literally, biblically, it, this day, by the way, is a Sunday, okay? It is a Sunday before the Passover, and the Passover will ultimately be a Thursday, okay? And that's the way it played out in their calendar back then. The idea is this. Palm, the, the, the throwing of the palm branches falls on a Sunday immediately preceding the Passover. The Jewish Passover is a feast for the nation of Israel And I don't want to make anybody mad, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with the Christian church. Nothing. Uh, You know, if you want to celebrate Palm Sunday, God bless you. That's fine. But just know that biblically, that's just not what it's for. This is where it comes from. What does that really mean, though? What it means is it's just the way of kind of like we talk about rolling out the red carpet or, or, or there's going to be a wedding and the bride, before she comes down, they roll the little white runner and nobody can walk on the white runner except the bride as she comes down. It's kind of that of an idea. They're, they're laying the path for the king to enter in to Jerusalem. And so they throw these palm branches down before him. They're welcoming their king. And, and we see that element uh, in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you were reading with us through the book of Leviticus, I know you were jazzed about Leviticus, man. I mean, that's a fun book. And I'm sure this verse didn't escape your, your notice. In chapter 23, which by the way, chapter 23 talks about all the feasts of Israel at that time. And in verse number 40 it says, And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now without going into a lot of details, that is specifically concerning a different feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, without having to go into a long Bible study, the Feast of Tabernacles typically shows up in September, okay? So here we are in the spring. This is a different feast. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, this idea of cutting down these branches, they made themselves booths or tabernacles, temporary tents to dwell in. And the idea was to welcome God to come dwell with us. It's God tabernacling or living, dwelling together with man. Well, isn't that what Jesus is doing? He is God in human flesh, and he is entering on the Passover, which represents deliverance and salvation, but it is God coming to dwell with his people, and so there's this element that comes from a different feast, but yet is applicable because it's Jesus. We fast forward to the future because, of course, they rejected him, and he'll come back another time into the time of tribulation, and the book of Revelation, chapter 7. We're doing a little Bible study here. You got to follow me. Chapter number 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Now, 
We quote these verses when we have missions conference. We quote these verses when we want to encourage everybody to take the gospel to the whole world. Why? Because ultimately in heaven, in that final scene, there's going to be people representing every single nation and tongue and tribe and people. And that's an awesome thought. And this is where it comes from. And this is what they're talking about. We're fast forwarding to the end. And it says, They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. So Jesus Christ is openly declaring who he is. He's not in hiding. The time has come, and it's obvious to everybody who knows the Scriptures. And by the way, the people who showed up at the Passover, they would have known the Scriptures. They would have understood the symbolism of what all that stuff meant. And so these elements of him entering, and if you just read through the story and you thought, that's kind of weird. They got a donkey and they put their jackets on him and they threw palm thing and he came down and people started singing. And this is a story, if you go to one of the other gospel accounts where they're like, man, all these, all these disciples are shouting out and crying out to you. Tell them to shut up. And they're like, do you realize that if we told those guys to be quiet that even the rocks would cry out? Because this is this big. This event is this huge. I will receive my praise. Okay, Jesus is saying. This is my moment. I am being presented as the king of the Jews. And that is a huge deal. All that's left for him to do now is to die for the nation. And if you want to read about the prophetic, uh, just different ways in where it's prophesied, Psalm 22 is a good place. Uh, if you want to read about his death for the nation, Isaiah 53 is a good place. Okay? And, and so it's all through the scripture as we see that kind of thing. And, and he's going to die and he's going to raise again from the dead. In Psalm 16, it says that, that you won't leave my soul in hell. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. You won't suffer the Holy One to see corruption. And, and so with that, we see the prophecy of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all that's left for him to do. If we took the same account, if we went to Luke's version of this story, I want to point something else out to you. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, if you've been following with us in the Gospel of John, this will mean something to you. It says, and when he was come near, Luke 19, 41, he beheld the city, Jerusalem, and it says, and he wept over it. When we were in the story with Lazarus and we saw it, it says, Jesus wept, okay? Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. That's the verse you guys got, right? You guys down here, you got Jesus wept. You quote a verse, you got Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Why did Jesus weep when Lazarus died? Uh, get that tape if you want to, but it, it's not because he just loved Lazarus so much. By the way, he loves all of us that much. He wept because the people wouldn't believe him. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The reason Jesus wept wasn't just because Lazarus was his good bud. He wept because I'm here to raise him. I am life, and y'all don't get it. And it was sorrowful. Jesus only weeps two times. It's only recorded that Jesus weeps two times in all the Bible. This is the other one. So we have Lazarus and we have this one. And he's, he's standing over Jerusalem. He's about to enter. And he's weeping over Jerusalem. Why is he weeping over Jerusalem? Well, you jump down to verse 44. And it says, And shall lay thee even with the ground and, the, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave it Leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. In other words, Jesus says, look, you guys don't understand. The, the time of your visitation means the time that God comes to visit you. In other words, me. <laughs> you don't get it. 
You don't understand. You don't believe. You are rejecting the very one who has come to save you. And because of that, judgment is coming. Not one stone will be left on another stone. This whole place will be thrown down to the ground. Why? Because you have rejected the very one who has come to save you. Utter and complete destruction that happened for Israel in A.D. 70. Okay, literally as a result of their rejection of their king. Because ultimately, that's all that ever happens. Just like in the, in the and we're going to see a practical application as we continue now. But Jesus comes the first time, lowly, humble, but prophetically right on point. And he just says, this is who I am. And your future is directly impacted based on whether or not you receive him or you reject him. Israel rejected him. And they were destroyed. And they were scattered among the nations. And for 1,900 years, were not utterly destroyed, but ultimately regathered again in 1948 as a nation, which is a miracle of history. And they're back in their land now as we wait out the last few days before all this is going to come to an end. We don't know God's timing, but we know it's got to be close. And so we look at this and we realize they rejected him and it brought swift judgment. What about you? As he is presented to you personally, are you going to receive him or are you going to reject him? And that's really our next point. So our second point in our outline is he was, he's the king of the Jews, yes, but this one is he's the king of your life, the king of your life. So we're going to read together. We're going to start in verse number 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. It's a good request. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So as this story continues... We have a little bit of a shift, and certainly there is a historical Jewish context, but I want to I transition it to us because as we go through this discourse that Jesus Christ does most of the talking, you have to understand that this is the Son of God speaking, inspired, preserved in your hands so you can get his word and what it means to you. It's a practical application. Lazarus historically is alive. He's walking around. There's a buzz. Everybody's like, whoa, that guy was dead. Now he's alive. I just talked to him. He told me the story. It was wild. And so they're like these Gentiles. 
people outside of the commonwealth of Israel, people who would have been proselytes, people who would have been interested in the Jehovah God of Israel show up at the Jewish feast of the Passover, okay? But what they represent for us is they represent the lost nations that are curious. They want to know more about this Jesus, and they make this statement, sir, we would see Jesus. That's a Gentile request. That's a great request, by the way. We want to see Jesus. Well, who wouldn't want to see Jesus? Are you kidding me? That guy who could do what nobody else could do, the guy who could take a few loaves and fish and could feed thousands and multiply thousands of people that he could heal the sick and he could control the weather and he can raise the dead and he can out-argue the highest educated minds of his day and at the same time love the little children all while never one time committing a sin? Who wouldn't want to see him? You guys in high school, I don't know if you have um, these kind of assignments. A lot of times you get assignments in school where they'll ask you to write an essay or something, and they'll say, um, if you could meet and have a conversation with any figure in history that you want, and, you know, what, what would you say? Who would you want to meet? Who, what would you want to talk about or whatever? And, and you do those kinds of assignments to make you think about who are some of the critical figures in history. And so people think about their sports heroes or their music icons or political figures or whatever that might be. Hey, man, what about Jesus? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, Jesus Christ, who has done all of those things that he has done, and to be able to uh, still be available to talk to you and to do those things. I remember when I was a freshman in college, sophomore in college, actually, sorry, and I had a speech class. And in my speech class in college, one of the, it was a, just an informative speech, and the topic was, uh, tell us a story about the most influential person in your life. You know, a lot of people say my mom, my dad, my grandpa, my coach, my, you know, some teacher, somebody who was very influential in their life, that's fine. Um, I was a new Christian. God had rocked my world, man, when Jesus presented the truth, and I got it. I didn't mind about Jesus and getting saved. I mean, I did. And uh, the most influential person in my life, and, I, and so I listed things that many people had done to help me. And I said, but nobody's done for me but what this guy's done. And I laid it all out. When I was done... The class was like, wow. <laughs> and I remember, all I remember, I got an A. Uh, what I remember was, which is weird in college these days, by the way, for getting an A for that subject, but the guy who was after me, you know, I give my five-minute speech, and the next guy's up, he's like, I got to go next. <laughs> you know. Are you kidding me? This guy that can do that? People would argue, yeah, but he's not a real person. Really? Yeah, but he's not currently alive. Really? Of course he is. That's who he is. Sir, we would see Jesus. I don't care about your political sports, music. I don't care about that. I want to see Jesus. That's who I want to see. People talk about going to heaven and, and being with their loved ones that had passed before them, and that's a wonderful thing. But with all of that being true, above all, I want to see Jesus, don't you? And that's what these Gentiles are saying. Listen, this story applies to us. Jesus is going to give us some good stuff here. But up until that time, okay, up until that time, Jesus kind of hadn't been in hiding. He kind of hadn't been doing things openly. Notice these Gentiles can't find him, kind of like lost people today. They can't find him. And what they need 
is a disciple. Now listen, this is good preaching right here. If you want to say amen, you're free to do that. Don't say amen until after I say it because I'm going to say something really cool. <laughs> These Gentiles can't find him. They need a disciple of Jesus to introduce him. Thank you. That's true. They need disciples of Jesus to introduce them to him. And that's what we see. Let me just ask you this before we move on. How about you? Do you really want to see Jesus? How how can you do that? How can you see Jesus today? Well, the first thing that the scriptures show us in verses 23 and 24 is to understand the gospel. So they go to Jesus, and Jesus answers them, Philip and Andrew. Jesus isn't talking to the Gentiles here. He's talking to his disciples. And so verses 23 and 24, the hour has come, the Son of Man should be glorified. In other words, this crucifixion thing is near. Okay? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die it bringeth forth much fruit. He's talking about his own life. A corn of wheat literally means a kernel, one seed kernel of wheat. And if you just lay that kernel of wheat on the table, it'll stay there, but it'll stay there just alone. (laughs) But if if it dies and goes into, and is buried, it will raise again into a plant that produces a whole bunch more kernels of wheat. It'll multiply itself. And so what he's saying here is, look, these people want to see me. First, you need to understand the gospel because the gospel is defined, 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. And because of that resurrection, he can multiply his life into each and every one of our lives just like a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and sprouts up and produces multiple more than it had had if it had just been one all by itself. And that's literally what he's saying. That verse, number 24, is just another way of presenting the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ says, I have to die, but when I die, I will come back. And when I come back, this life will be multiplied. Do you understand that today? Are you here today and you never really understood that Jesus Christ died for your sin he loves you that much and that when he died he took on him your sin but just because he did that does not mean that you automatically get eternal life you have to do something and we'll see that in our second point here but he did die in order to pay the penalty that you and i deserve for what we did and that's sin that's the gospel and he rose victorious after all of that offering to us the victory offering to us the triumph offering to us the prize of eternal life. Maybe today's the day that finally you say, yeah, I'm going to do that. And that's the second thing that he says, and that's back to our outline, and that's to surrender your life. Surrender your life, and that's what we see in verse number 25. So in verse 24, you have the gospel. So what, do we, what does he tell the disciples? Hey, the gospel, and they have to surrender to it. Verse number 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. You have to let go. You have to have faith. You have to trust him. You can't cling unto your own life. You can't be the master of your own fate and destiny. You cannot rule your own life. You have to surrender the throne, the the decision-making center of your life 
to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, you are not saved, period. End of statement. No exceptions. Now, let me just tell you, there are a lot of really nice people who may be very religious, but never do that. They never surrender. They never cast their life aside and surrender it totally and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether you're a young person and you're still wrestling with that issue, whether you're not so young anymore, but you've always wrestled with this issue, I'm not asking you if you're a good person. I'm sure you're all wonderful people. I'm not asking you if you've done a lot of nice things. I'm sure you've all done very nice things. The question is, have you ever truly surrendered your heart and your life to the lordship of the one who, as the kernel of wheat, died, was buried, and rose again? Because if you have done that, and when you do surrender that, guess what you get to do? See Jesus. You get to see Jesus <laughs> with the eyes of faith, not physical, eventually physically, not yet, but that's what he does. And maybe today's the day you need to make that decision. Maybe now's the time that you step out and you say, I need to do that. This whole surrender thing kind of depends on how you look at it, isn't it? On one hand, you're like, that's too easy. Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to give some money or get baptized or do so many good works or Whatever, don't have, to, don't have to do something? No, that's all you gotta do, just surrender. So that's real easy, that's almost too easy. On the other hand, you say, that's hard. <laughs> that is hard, man. Because at the end of the day, inside of each and every one of us is such a powerful will to live and rule our own existence I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own fate. No man tells me what to do. I'm going to do what I think I need to do. And that's a very manly, that's a very American value. That's a, you know, and, and there are elements of you know, taking charge of your life that make sense. But in the issue of salvation, it's the dumbest thing in the world you could possibly do. Because he that will save his own life will lose it. That strategy, if that's your strategy, it won't work. Jesus is warning you, it won't work. You have to use his strategy. So he does that, and he makes it very clear. So these Gentiles, you want to see them, that's what they got to do. And so now when we get past verse number 25, we get to verse number 26, and what we see Jesus do is he shifts the attention now to his disciples. So we're not talking about the, the Gentiles anymore. Now he's shifting to the disciples, and, and basically the issue is about serving him. So the question I ask you is, how can you serve Jesus today? And the first thing that he says is we serve him by following him. Verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. Let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. And that makes sense, right? If Je- if, literally speaking, if Jesus is walking along and his servants are following him, okay, where's Jesus? He's here. Where's his followers? Well, they're there too. They're there with him. <laughs> they're following him. Wherever he goes, that's where they go, right? Okay, very simple. Well, what does that really mean, okay? Because physically, you know, Jesus isn't walking around. So what does that really mean to us about if you're going to serve him, you're going to follow him? Well, let me just help you define it. God defines it in his word. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 19 says very clearly this. He, Jesus, saith unto them, okay, Peter and Andrew says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What does it mean to follow 
Jesus. What does it mean to serve Jesus? Let's say this. Those who serve follow. That's what he said in John 12. In Matthew 4, those that follow fish. Fish for men. We call that evangelism. We call that sharing the gospel with other people so that others can get new life in Jesus Christ. It's actively talking to other people about how they can have new life in Jesus Christ. It's like fishing. You never know if the fish are going to bite, but you're throwing it out there. You're throwing it out there, and you're trying to see if people will do it. Listen, I'm not a, a, I don't fish, okay? I don't go out on the rivers. I don't fish. But I know this. I also never catch anything. I know that. I never catch fish. Why? I never fish. Now, that, that, that was good preaching too, by the way. <laughs> now, you can fish and not catch them. That's different. I don't fish. Now, in the, in the spiritual thing, if you don't fish, guess what you don't do? You don't catch any, of course. Now, you might fish and not catch any. That's different. Jesus said you'll be fishers. He didn't say you'll be catchers. That's his business. You're fishers. Servants follow. Followers fish. You serve the Lord? You serve the Lord? Well, I serve the Lord because I help set up microphones and I help vacuum the floor. And by the way, those are wonderful. Thank God for all the people that volunteer and do stuff. In the context that we're talking about, serving is following, following is fishing. When's the last time, be honest with yourself, when's the last time you opened your mouth and shared the gospel with somebody who didn't know it? That's the last time you followed because followers are fishers and that's what he expects of us. And we can talk about all the other things that we do for the Lord and thank God, but the one thing he asked us to do, we must do. Not leave this undone. I want to show you one other place, and this is really good. Mark chapter 8. Look with me in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse number 34. Same context, same exact context. It says, And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Just like John 12, 25, right? You hate your life in this life. You don't try and save your own life. It's all about surrender. It's about dying to yourself. It's about giving up your life to follow him. He will deny himself, take up his cross. It's the, it's the method of capital punishment and execution. I will die to myself to live for Christ and I will follow him. What does that mean? That means sharing the gospel as it goes on in verse number 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is it that we do for God and for the brethren and for church and for humanity and for society and for all these things if it ultimately doesn't lead to people being regenerated in their soul with eternal life? Does it really profit them? If we feed the hungry and they go to hell with a belly full, if we clothe the naked and they go to hell with clothes on, does it really profit them? Help people. Don't get me wrong. Don't say that I said what I didn't say. 
The gospel's way more important, way more important, is it not? It sure is. And he says this. This is tough, verse 38. Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the service, guys. This is what Jesus wants us to do. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And if you're following me, the natural result is you are fishing for men. We have got to make a priority of fishing for men. We have got to make a priority of opening our mouth and initiating gospel conversations on purpose if we want to claim that we're following Christ, if we want to claim that we are serving him. That is what he says. He puts the emphasis there, and we have to accept it. We go on in verse number 26 back in John chapter 12. And it says, and if any man serve me, him will my father honor. So there's this issue of honor that shows up. And God the Father will honor anybody who does that, who does what? Who follows slash fishes. That's the main job. That's our main job. Listen, we're going to worship in eternity. We're going to rejoice in eternity. We'll be sinless in eternity. We'll serve in eternity. We'll do all kind of stuff in eternity. The one thing you're not doing in eternity is evangelizing. Because those of us that made it, made it, and those that didn't, didn't, it's too late. And God the Father says, wow, if you'll serve me in this way, I'll honor you. I'll honor you. But I want you to be careful. Because the honor, the honor that God promises, it's not guaranteed to be here and now. I'm going to tell you something. The number one problem with religious leaders whether they be Pharisees, whether they be somebody in Rome who needs to be elected, whether they be Baptist pastors or missionaries, the number one danger with people in religious positions of leadership is that they begin to believe all the nice things that people say about them. When you start to believe all the nice things that people say about you, you're at risk of trying to get the honor that comes from men and not the honor that comes from God alone. And that's a slippery slope. And that's something you really got to watch out for. How does the Father honor us? Well, you know, there may be some times of honor that show up in this life, and if you get it, praise the Lord, but that cannot be your focus. If that's your focus, your attitude is wrong. But the way God promises to honor us is with crowns. It's with crowns. He, he promises to give us crowns, rewards, eternal, heavenly rewards. And in the Bible, there are specifically five crowns that are mentioned. I'm going to give you two of them here real quick. The first one is in Revelation 2 and verse number 10, where it says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. This is sometimes called the martyr's 
crown. And some people mistakenly think that it's only available to those who literally have been murdered for their faith. And history proves there have been thousands, if not millions of people who have been murdered for their faith in Jesus and for sure they would earn this crown. But I want to present to you that this crown of life is also offered to each and every one of us if we will willingly do what he said in Mark chapter 8, and that's take up our cross, die to ourselves daily, and live for him. You get a crown. God will honor you. It's the crown of life. There's another crown, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19 and 20. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica that he began, and he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? There it is. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul says, I led you guys to Christ. Your new life in Christ plays into a crown for me, a crown of rejoicing, sometimes called the soul winner's crown. You're evangelistic. You die to yourself and fleshly desires. You die to your fears and your timidness to not open your mouth. And you step out on faith and serve Jesus and follow Jesus and fish for men. And he gives you fruit and people get saved and you get crowns, a crown of life, a crown of rejoicing. And there's other ways as well, but God promises if you will follow him, okay, he'll honor you. That's what he says. He will honor you. And that's a very cool thing. The next several verses in our text, 27, 28, 29, 30, what we see basically Jesus returns to this thinking about his hour, thinking about the fact that he's going to be crucified. He prays to the Father. Father answers with a voice from heaven. The people standing around said it sounded like thunder. Somebody else would have said an angel spoke to him. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll find that whenever there's a voice that comes from heaven, okay, the people who are not believers that are standing around just hear thunder. It's a beautiful picture, by the way, of what will happen at the rapture of the church. The the skies part, a voice comes. He's going to shout to his believers, come up hither. We will each hear his voice and our own name as we ascend into the heavens to be with him forever. Other people around who are not believers will just hear this great thunder anytime there's a heavy rainstorm in the spring. Man, I'm just hoping. I'm just hoping. That's the way God reveals. His voice thunders, and that can be used descriptively but it can be understood literally as well because the literal words of God are not comprehensible to the unsaved ear. And that's kind of what we see in that little passage. I want to get back to our our topic, though, in verses 31 and 32, and we'll kind of wrap it up with this because for those people, whether you be in this room or whatever, the people who are yet undecided, for people who have yet to make their decision, what am I going to do with this Jesus? There's bad news and good news, okay? Okay. And so we'll start with the bad news. It's always better to end with the good. And verse 31 is bad news, okay? It says, now is the judgment of this world. If you were here and thinking that the judgment of this world is still yet future, you'd be mistaken. Because this world has already been judged at Calvary. When Jesus Christ dies, he has already declared mankind is guilty. That's why he had to die. So Calvary judges us all. For now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The prince of this world is the devil. 
and he is not cast out at that moment because, and now it is determined that he shall be cast out. And if you want to do the Bible study in Revelation chapter 12, he's ultimately cast out, okay? So that all takes place at Calvary. So Calvary brings the judgment. Calvary determines we are already guilty. Don't think that there's, you have some redemptive hope out in front of you without Jesus Christ, that your judgment is going to come at some time yet future. There is going to be this one great ultimate judgment. The Bible calls it the great white throne. At the time of the great white throne judgment, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we, the Christians, will judge this world which in my little weird thinking, I'm kind of happy about. Because I'm going to tell you something, this world's done no, done no favors for me. None whatsoever. And I hope everybody gets saved out of it, but they're not all going to get saved out of it. And there's coming a day when it's going to be all done and taken care of and the, the, the playing field will be leveled. But the judgment of mankind that was taken care of, everybody's determined guilty at Calvary. But there's good news, yay, verse 32. Verse 32. And I, Jesus says, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And verse 33 is talking about what kind of death. Lifted up from the earth on a cross to die for us. So Calvary judges us all. Calvary also draws us all. You see that? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Some of you maybe have done some Bible study and have come across other people who promote an idea that the Bible teaches that we are all predetermined by God whether we go to heaven or whether we go to hell. And that God only draws those who would be called the, the elect to salvation. Those people have a real hard time with this verse right here. Because he says, I draw all men. And the only way they can possibly dance around that verse is they have to just redefine words. And they say, well, all doesn't mean all. And I'm like, really? I know fourth graders that know that all means all. <laughs> all means all the world of the elect. Really? Jesus died for the whole world, the whole world of the elect. That's crazy. The fact that he died on Calvary judges us all guilty, yes. But the fact that he died on Calvary, God the Father is drawing each and every one of us, absolute, he loves us all. And just like Israel in the presentation of their king of the nation, he came humbly and they had to receive or reject it. So in your life today, Jesus Christ is coming, but he's not coming with all the, all the glory and all the force and all the judgment and all, the, all of that. He's coming today lowly, humble, unassuming, and he's just saying, will you receive me or will you reject me? That's all I want to know. That's all that matters. Maybe you're here and you're saying, man, you know, I, I'm compelled. I, I've never felt this. I, I feel something stirring in me. Can I tell you? That's what God does. He's drawing you. He's drawing you. And maybe now is the time you just need to respond. If we finish our text, I, I had put on your text all the way down to verse 36. Verse 34 says, the people answered, we've heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, if the law says Jesus is going to live forever, what's, why has he got to die? I don't understand why he's dying if he's got to live forever. It's kind of confusing to me. 
And he goes on in verse 35, Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. And we've seen earlier in John, Jesus is the light of the world. We've seen that. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. In verse 36, and here's where we'll end. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from then again. Listen, you're here today and you're hearing these things and it's been burning in your heart and something's going on. Let me tell you, it ain't burning in your heart because I'm a smooth talker. It ain't burning in your heart for any other reason except the fact there's a Holy Spirit of God and his job is to draw you. And you feel that stirring in you. And Jesus is, in a sense, passing through this room here today. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light that you may have eternal life. Because there's coming a time the light's going to pass. And if you're in darkness, there's no hope. And it says after that, Jesus showed up, he said what he had to say, and he moved on, and he hid himself and couldn't be found again. If I were you, and I have been you, by the way, and, and I'm feeling the stirring, and I, and I have felt it, and you're thinking, man, what do I do? I feel like this is it, but I'm, I'm nervous. Let me just tell you. First off, God is doing something in you. You're in a room full of friends. And who cares what anybody thinks? By the way, people want the best for you. Respond while you have the light before it's too late. Don't let this day pass. Let's all pray together.